Okay, Paul writes to Titus. Titus is his somewhat of a protege. He's this younger guy that he's been discipling, kind of like Timothy. And Paul, writing to Titus, tells him, I left you on the island of Crete for a reason. The island of Crete is a tiny little island. It's about the size of Jackson County in the, in the Mediterranean Sea, kind of in the Mediterranean Ocean. And Paul left Titus there. We don't know when Paul was there with Titus, but he left Titus there. And there was a collection of churches on this little island just a few miles apart. And Paul left Titus and commissioned him to put into order what was in disorder on the island. He said to establish elders, not just an elder, but establish elders in every single town that there was a church on the island of Crete. And so he was putting into order, Titus was, under the commissioning of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, he was putting things into order on that island. And so in chapter 1 of the book of Titus, we have directions from Paul to Titus about church life and leadership. So how is the church to conduct itself now that Paul's gone, now that Titus is there and there's the establishment of elders, how is the church, how the church supposed to conduct themselves? And then in chapter 2, you move from church life into home life. So directions for how to live and conduct themselves in the home. How does a husband and wife work? How does that work in the home? And then in chapter 3, there's another shift. And then they get the churches get direction for public life under civil authorities, under civil law. And that's where we pick it up today. How is the church to conduct themselves from the inside out under civil law, publicly, public life of the church? And Paul, he does this interesting and important thing over and over again. When he gives the church commands to the church, to the home, and then for the church in public life, when he gives commands to the church, he connects those commands with the grace of God. He tells the churches what to do. And then he over and over again reminds the church about what's been done for them. He connects the commands of God with the grace of God. So when we get this instruction that's going to come our way, we need to take heed, we need to listen to it, but we want to notice the pattern of Paul, which is to connect the commands of God with the declarations of God. Paul isn't just giving us law and telling us, get to work. Because in the first two verses of chapter 8, or chapter 3, we're going to see seven commands given to us. Commands that we should obey, listen to, and implement in our lives. But he's doing something more than just telling us, do this. Get to work, clench your teeth, clench your fists, that sort of thing. We've talked about this before. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he does this. It's really interesting. In verse 11, he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Paul says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now, this isn't universalism. All people, Jews, Gentiles, all people. The grace of God. So anybody that's saved is saved by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And Paul tells them that it's the grace of God that trains them to say no to sin and ungodliness. So the training regiment for these churches on the island of Crete and for us, the training regiment, the supplement, what we need to grow in godliness and say no to worldly passions is God's grace. That's our training regimen. That's our supplements that we're eating. We're mixing it up and drinking it. We're, we're being trained by God's grace to live upright lives in this present age. And this is what Paul does in the book of Ephesians. This is what Paul does in, in Galatians. He does this in, in his letters. He connects the commands with the grace of God. The commands of God with the grace of God. 
So for those who are saved, God's grace trains us in godliness. It says it really clear and explicitly. God's grace is training us to renounce ungodliness. So when we see ungodliness in our life in any way, when we hear and think about God's grace, it trains us to stop that behavior from the inside out. That's the training regiment for us for spiritual growth. And the worldly passions that continue to cling to us from the inside of of our bodies, the flesh, those worldly passions that rise up in us, when we consider and think about and we're overwhelmed with the grace of God, those worldly passions begin to lose their grip on us over time. And over the decades, we begin to see, oh, I I don't covet the things I used to covet anymore. I don't long for the things that I used to long for anymore. In chapter 2, it ends with a clear command to Titus, declare these things. Chapter 2, verse 15, declare these things. And then in chapter 3, it opens up to some new things to declare. Because in verse 8, we get this from Paul. Eight, verse 8 in chapter 3, insist on these things. So chapter 2 ends with declare these things. Chapter 3 opens up with some more things to insist on. And we see in verse 8 that Titus is to insist on these things to the believers. So this is a new thing. We're opening up a new section in the book of Titus. And John Stott, he's a great commentator. A lot of commentaries can be really boring. If if you open up some commentaries and begin to read, you can think, man, this is like the, the whole goal here was just to make it as boring as possible. And John Stott's a little bit different. I really enjoy what he has to say. And so if you're looking for a good just a, a, a readable commentary. Just look up anything from John, John Stott. It's a commentary. And read it. And he has this really insightful thing about the pattern of, of, of Titus chapter 3. Here's what he says. The pattern of chapter 3 is the same as that of chapter 2. The apostle begins with ethical instructions. In this case, the need to be submissive to authorities for consideration for, every, for everybody. He then immediately grounds Christian duty or these Christian commands in Christian doctrine, giving us a magnificently full account of salvation. He reserves some final and more personal instruction for the conclusion of the chapter. So at first, here the, here's the instruction, here's what you're to do, and then he connects it with this Christian doctrine about the gospel of Jesus. So we don't get confused about the law of God and the grace of God. So here's where we're headed, verse 8, verse 8. Go ahead and look at chapter 3, verse 8, because I want to to take you to the end of this section and then start back at the beginning. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul tells Titus, I'm leaving you on Crete. And then here in chapter 3, I want you to insist on these things. Tip Titus, insist on this. Don't make this optional. Make sure they know these things that I'm telling you are directly from the Lord and they need to hear them. Insist on this. And he says, insist on these things, comma, so that. So there's a reason that Titus is supposed to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God, this is important, so that the Christians... Those who have believed in God, in this context, it's the believers here on the island of Crete, so that those who have believed in God would be careful to devote themselves to good works. Okay, so how do Christians grow? How do we devote ourselves to good works? And not just devote ourselves, but be careful to devote ourselves to good works. 
So when we think about our day tomorrow, let's carefully devote ourselves to good works, to spiritual growth, to Christ-likeness. How do we do that? How does that happen? How do we carefully devote ourselves to good works tomorrow and the rest of the day today? When your team, when you're watching the game and they start to lose, how do you not throw the remote at the TV? How do you devote yourself to good works? Well, we're going to see. Paul says that something in these things to insist on is going to be helpful for the believers to carefully devote themselves to good works. Our butts get pulled up a little bit in the seats. Our ears begin to lean in. We wonder, okay, what are these things? These things are going to be interesting. What what does Titus need to insist on? And then we're told some other beautiful things. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let me ask you something. Do you want some excellent things this morning for yourself? And you can answer back. Okay, thank you, Leah. Do you want some profitable things for yourself this morning? Okay. Anybody else? Leah? Profitable too? Okay, yes. Thank you. Excellent and profitable things. Well, they are all contained in this insist on these things statement. What are these things? What what are we to insist on, Paul, if our people are going to be careful to devote themselves to good works? Well, I'm so glad, so, so glad that all of you at once are begging to know and all asking me the question. It's with your eyes. I can see it in your eyes. Asking me the question. So let's look at verse 1, and let's just go and look at verse 1 and 2, and we're going to see seven commands given to the churches on the island of Crete, and consequently given to us here today in the county of Jackson, the city of Carbondale. Remind them, verse 1, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Seven commands. Let's break them down one by one. Submit to rulers and authorities. Submission is radically countercultural. Now, if this group of people is going to live this way on the island of Crete, there's civil authorities on this little island, okay? There's probably, most likely, I wasn't able to confirm this, but most likely it's probably under Roman rule, and they're having to subject themselves to these leaders. And I don't know if you know this, but Roman rule wasn't the most godly in first century Mediterranean regions. They would uh, advance their territory through uh, mass genocide, and then they would occupy through the taxes of the people, and they would protect what was theirs. And Paul has the audacity to tell them to submit themselves to rulers and authorities. And in this culture, we live in this anti-authoritative culture. We kind of have this posture, even within the Christian faith, don't tell me what to do or tell me how to live. My truth is in here. I'll determine for myself how I'm going to live. And there is a good sort of independence that we need to have as people. There is a good, godly sort of independence that we need to have as people. But there is an ungodly way to live your life as well that masquerades as independence. That says, I don't need anybody or anything, and I especially don't need God. I know what I know because I just feel that way. Or I just think that way. It's my truth. It's in here. But Christians are not to conduct themselves that way. We are to submit ourselves. And according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we are to pray for our rulers and authorities. Let me just tell you this. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible command Christians to complain about our leaders and authorities on the internet. 
Nowhere. I mean, there's not a single verse. And yet, come election time, every two years, every four years, it would seem that there's verses galore that tell us, hey, complain about anyone and everyone that you don't like on the internet. Shocking, there's no verses in there. And if you find yourself regularly complaining for those who are in authority in this country more than praying for them, whoever your candidate is or isn't, if you find yourself complaining from the inside, even grumbling, I'm a grumbler on the inside. I can smile on the outside while grumbling on the inside. But nowhere in the Bible are we told that. But we are told to pray for our leaders and to submit to them unless they ask us to sin. We clearly see that in the book of Acts. But we are to submit ourselves. And while everybody else is complaining and crying out, and have you ever seen anyone who is so obsessed? Now, we need people and Christians in the political arena. We need godly men and women who are willing to invest in civil responsibilities. And we are to do that as well. But if your whole life is consumed by politics and your joy is fluctuates but between your candidate or not your candidate, you will live a long and miserable life. You will not find happiness in this life. But Christians, on the other hand, are conduct ourselves in a different way publicly. We are, we are to be prayers. We pray for our people. You know what? This convicted me because I rarely, if ever, pray for the president of our United States, for public officials here in Carbondale and Jackson County, or I don't know if you do in Williamson, wherever you live. Do you ever pray for your people that are in authority over you? I sure complain about property taxes. Right? Homeowners, amen. Complain about property tax. I wish that verse was in there. But how about praying? Because believers are called to strong submission. Not weak, need, wet, noodled submission. But faces set like flint, looking eye to eye at rulers and authorities and saying, I'll commit to praying for you and I'll submit to you willingly. Who in the world lives like that? Submit to rulers and authorities. It requires fortitude. It requires strength to live in that way. Pundits ramble on and on. Christians keep praying on and on and giving respect on and on to those who are in authority over them. Command number two, obedient. Obedient. It's somewhat connected to the first command. Command number two is obedient. Christians obey. No believers get to opt out of this. We are all under authority. Everyone in this world is under authority. And it's our joyful call to submit and to obey. Not just to God, but to those who are in, our, in leadership over us. We all have that in the local church. I have authorities here. Congregation, you are my authority along with my elders. And you've heard me say, it's almost like I've been beating a dead horse here. You have authority over what I preach. And if I'm preaching falsely, you'll be held accountable by God to say something and do something about it. The elders here, I have to submit to. We all have authorities. I have leaders in this city and county that I have to obey. I have police men and women that I have to obey. I have laws set in place that I have to obey. And so do you. We are to be obedient. We obey God and authorities, like I said, unless they ask us to sin. Obedience for the believer is not a killjoy, but obedience for the believer is a joyful Christian responsibility. What God, God's word tells me to do and not do, that's good for me. 
That's good for me. What God tells me to do is best for me. It's better for me to obey than disobey. When I'm told to forgive my enemies, love your enemies, pray for your enemies, you know that that's actually not just a command just because God just made it. It's actually good for me to love and pray for those who persecute you. It's if I hold on to bitterness, and if you hold on to bitterness, and you live an unforgiving life, making demands upon people and conditions upon people, and conditional forgiveness based on your measure of how, how repentant they are or not are, how much they know they've hurt you, or fill in the blank, or if their repentance has to match your pain. If that's the life you live, it's like choking yourself. It's not good for you. But to obey, obey the Lord, obey God's word, it's actually good for you. You've heard it said before, when you're withholding forgiveness, you're not putting a, you're not choking the other person, you're choking yourself. So it's actually good to obey. Christians love this. It's better to obey than to disobey. Command three, ready for every good work. Ready for every good work. The last command in verse one. Okay, consumer or producer? Are you a consumer in this world? Or are you a contributor? Not producer, you could write contributor, get your thesaurus out, maybe this works. Contributor, not producer. But are you a contributor or are you a consumer in this world? Christians contribute things to the non-Christian world. Here are some things that we contribute to this world. It may not be goods and services. It may be goods, goods and services, depending upon your vocational calling. But Christians contribute to a lost and dying world, and this is God's grace to a lost and dying world, These things called the, this thing called the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The call to the Christian's public life is to be a contributor to the community of humanity. Wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, we get to contribute some things. We're ready for every good work. This earth is seasoned with grace, and with love, and with kindness by us leaving this building and going out to where we go out through the week. We contribute. We're ready for every good work. That's our command. This week, be ready. Be ready. Be prepared for every good work that could come your way. Verse 2 First command in verse 2, speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one. Paul, we could say the Holy Spirit, does not want us to slander or gossip. Christians simply cannot do this and obey the Lord simultaneously. Christian communities, unfortunately, have, have built this reputation of being talkers, of being gossips, and the fact that we have indwelling sin, I talked about that, that, that this week, this last week. If you missed last week's sermon, we'll get that up. The, the last three weeks are up. And I don't know if we, we may have some recording difficulties with last week. But one of the things I talked about last week was the risk of being involved in Christian community. When you involve yourself in Christian community, you're opening yourself up to the possibility of pain because none of us in this room are Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And so it's risky to get involved here or anywhere else. Because over time, there's going to be some point or another that I will probably hurt you. It won't be intentional. It won't be maniacal. But Jesus will never hurt you. 
But I'm hopeful, and I think that this culture is here, that Christians on the island of Crete and Christians in this room and where we go out through the week, when we hear gossip and slander, we don't say, what was that? Speak up. But we hear, I don't need to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't need to hear it. There isn't that covetousness inside of me to be in the know with all the gossip. It's, oh, they know everything that's going on. I wish I did. Gossip and slander have no place. Speaking evil of people have no place in the community of faith. So that's a challenge that's laid upon us, and that is good for us. Negative people aren't happy. Positive people are called fake by negative people. And your natural disposition may not be one of just bubbly positivity like mine. I like the word bubbly. It's not manly enough. Like (laughs) masculine positivity or something. I don't know. It may not be that way. But if your natural disposition is, is, is one of don't feed it with negativity. Don't feed your natural disposition with speaking slander and lies and evil about other people. It will not help you. So speak evil of no one. The next command in verse 2 is avoid quarreling. Avoid it. Avoid quarreling. It's just clear. The quarreling person is, again, not a happy person. Offended people, have you noticed how many, if you're always offended, the problem isn't with other people. I think Matt Chandler said this years ago, and it's always kind of stuck with me. If you're always offended, the problem isn't other people, it's you. It's kind of like when you're younger in the dating world, and there's always that person that's like, I hate drama, I hate drama, but drama's always around them because they actually love drama. Avoid quarreling. Offended people quarrel. The more offended you are, the more quarreling you will be involved in. If you're offended all the time, it's just like bait. It's just like the fish or the, the hook is set and it goes out there, and you're just the quarreling person's just always looking and always offended and always able to find something to invite themselves into. And Paul's like, hey, it's not gonna help you on this little island of Crete, and it's not gonna help you wherever you're at. So just avoid it. Don't take the bait. If you're in school, there's always always new information in school. High schoolers are always talking. Grade schoolers, junior highers are always talking. Don't take the bait. Avoid quarreling. In other words, if you see quarreling going on, unless it's going to require your strength to be there for protection, if you see quarreling going on, just go, like, I I don't even care. Just go go the other direction. If you find yourself at work and that's happening, just, just put your earbuds in or, or if you're, just do whatever. If you're a construction worker, just punch the guy and tell him to quit. Okay, just kidding. That's quarreling. But here's the deal. If we actually believe what the Bible says about humanity, we will stop being shocked and offended all the time. We will stop being shocked and offended all the time. Do you remember who you used to be? Why are we shocked by the behavior of others? Be gentle, sixth command, be gentle. Be gentle. What a fantastic attribute. The world doesn't, today doesn't cherish being gentle. 
the only people who are supposed to be gentle are uh, feminized men, basically. In this world where it's just acceptable, just be gentle, be gentle. That's not real gentleness. Real gentleness isn't weakness or being quiet. And there is good to being quiet. But just a quiet way of existing is not the call. Gentleness. You know, meekness, when people talk about meekness, strength restrained or power under restraint. To, to be gentle means you have strength. And it requires a command to tell you, be gentle. Be gentle. Men and women, gifted, called men and women of God, be gentle. This is going to require effort by God's grace. Be gentle. Gentleness, it is a lost virtue. And then command number seven, perfect courtesy toward all people. Perfect courtesy toward all people. We are to respect the image of God in every person. People are created in God's image, so we give courtesy to those people. Show honor to other people. Count each other more more significant than yourself. When we look at the world and we see a person, it's not just a person, even this lost person out there, no matter who they are, they are created in the image of God and our call is to show them perfect courtesy. Even if they don't deserve it in your mind, perfect courtesy. These are the commands given to the churches in the island of Crete. Insist on these things. And these are good and noble endeavors for us to consider and think through. Okay, how can these things be implemented in my life? But if we just stop here and don't get to what Paul does next, which is just, again, otherworldly, because other religions don't do this. Other messages of the world, they give you things to do like this, but there they stop. That's it. Do this and don't do this. Welcome to Global Religion 101. But Christianity isn't global religion. It's something totally different. It's something totally different, Nick. Isn't that good news? We made eye contact, so I had to say his name. Totally different. Well, Paul begins to... He begins to talk to the people and and tell them some things that are going to be helpful in making them empathetic. Help them remember who it is in the world that they're living with. Remember, we're talking about public conduct here. How are we going to live in the world, in the workplace? And Paul reminds them about who they used to be. The Christians, those who had believed in God, reminds them about who they used to be. Look at verse 4, or verse 3, sorry. For we ourselves, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So all Christians, lest you think... The group of people out here, the mass of humanity, has to earn something for you to get something from you for all these things for us to begin to do and live. Let's just remember who you used to be. You were once foolish. We start to think in the room, okay, who of us? We start to think, okay, were I all these things? Were I some of these things? Foolish. Living as if there was no God. Foolishness. There is no God. I am on my own. Or even if there's a belief in God, even if there's a basic deism, a posture of existence that just lives as if I and my own authority is foolish. Foolish. I know what's best. I know my truth. I get to determine that. That's foolishness. Absolute foolishness. Those who would live in such a way to believe that truth is in here, 
rather than external to themselves is the most selfish and self-centered way to exist imaginable. It's foolish. Believing that I am the ultimate source of any sort of authority that will come my way. What I think and what I feel is ultimate truth. That is arrogant. And it's foolish. That's who we used to be. Disobedient. Disobey God and those who are in authority. From the inside out, there was a disobedient posture from the inside out within us. We were led astray. We believed and did the wrong things. The barometer of how we lived our life was what feels best to me. Whatever feels best to me right now in this moment, that's what I'm going to do. That's how we lived our life. We had no external authority that we submitted to. We had no wise counsel that we walked with. It was just what feels right to me right now. This, and it may even sound right. And in that moment, it may have even been the right thing. But a posture of existence that just says, I'm going to do my best and I'm going to make it my own way. I'm going to do what I think is best is the epitome of what it means to be led astray. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Don't follow your heart. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passions and pleasures owned us. I thought they would fulfill. And I found out they didn't. But I went to the next passion. And I went to the next pleasure. And I went to the next passion, and I went to the next pleasure, and they helped me for a, mi- for a minute. They helped me for a few years. They helped me for a decade. But in time, it ran out. Malice. We made a plans. We made plans. Malice, this idea of making plans around our sins. Malice and envy. We lived our lives around what we were passionate about and around our pleasures. Our sinful activities became the dominant force in our life. So we lived in malice and then envy. We always wanted what other people had. The lie was out in front of us, just like I talked about last week, that if I had what they had, I would be happy the way they're happy. If I just got to this position in life, or if I just got to that position in life, I would finally, finally be happy. Envy, keeping up with the Joneses. Sorry if there's anybody in here with the last name Jones. Keeping up with the Joneses became their life's goal. This is how we used to exist. This is how we used to live. And it can look moral. It can look right. It can look like ambition. It can look like drive and motive, motivation. And it's malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. In other words... There's a way of existing that looks like caring about others, but it's actually using others to get what you want. Hating other people often looks like loving other people, but actually it's manipulation. There's a way to exist where it looks like that guy would give a shirt off his very back, but it's not actually loving another person, it's manipulating the other person. Filling up your bank account of what you think's coming to you because of how you've lived your life. That's not love. That's using image bearers of God for your own self-advancement. That's how we used to live. It's a, I'll scratch my back, you'll scratch my back. If, if you scratch my back or if I scratch your back, we'll, we'll be able to handle this. But that isn't love, that's manipulation. Scratching either your, somebody else's back to get them to scratch your back isn't love. It's using people. 
And it's manipulation. Now, if you're scratching each other's back right now, somebody just scratched you over each other's back. It's just not, not that scratch, back scratching is bad. You get my point, hopefully. In this whole section, it sounds like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 says something so comparable. It says that you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's not working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our body and mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, we didn't wiggle our way out of the mass of humanity. We were there with them. We are not morally superior to anyone. We were them. You want to build empathy in your heart for the lost and dying world? Consider who you were and where you were before Christ came to you, whether you were moral or immoral. We were just like everyone else, no difference, same trouble, same loss, same spiritual deadness, same rebellion, but something happened to us. Something happened to us. And it wasn't that we, in this spiritual dead mass of humanity, began to open our own eyes and began to see the truth and began exploring other religions and began to exploring the truth. Something happened to us, and this is going to be crucial for us. Remember, Paul says, insist on these things. Insist. And if you'll get this, I'm telling you, if you'll get this, not just the commands of God, but if you'll get what's coming, it, it has benefits in your life for the rest of your life. There is joy forevermore to be found here. This is the fundamental difference between what is a Christian message, what is a Christian sermon, and what is just a religious rant from any global religion in any corner of the universe, or any corner of this world. It's this, what we're about to talk about. This is the fundamental difference between world religion and Christianity. Look at verse 4. Oh, I'm in Ephesians 2 still. Chapter 3 of Titus, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. In the midst of the mess, the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus showed up. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. There is no moral high ground, as I said before. You can't look to everybody else and say, hey, be like me. Look at me. How do we conduct ourselves in this world? You've got to know this. You have to know this. You were them. And Jesus doesn't wait for us to get out of the gutter. He comes to the gutter. He comes to the spiritual morgue. Jesus showed up with love and kindness. He didn't come with an iron fist. He came in kindness to you. The kindness of Jesus upon children of wrath. Think about that glorious paradox. 
There we were, minding our own selfish, rebellious business, living life, and I'll do my way, life and way. And Jesus showed up. And when he showed up, he did something. His action was on display. It wasn't he showed up so we could save ourselves. He showed up and he saved us. Therefore, he gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. He gets all the praise. He gets 100 of 100 hand claps. None are reserved for you. Not even a half. He saved us. Us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is so crucial. He didn't come and save us because we chose him. He didn't come and save us because we were drawn to him only. He didn't come to save us because we said yes to his grace. And although we did, you did choose Jesus and you did say yes to his grace, but you are not saved because of that. This is crucial. Jesus did not save you because you reached out to him. You reached out to him because he saved you. Jesus did not come to you because you reached out to him and pleaded for for him to come. I'm in the mess. Come save me. You reached out to him because he came to you and saved you. So years ago, this is how this this works because we get all like twisted in knots about this. Uh, Downstairs, there's a stand-up desk. You may have heard me say this before. I don't know if I've... I couldn't remember. I looked this up. I couldn't remember if I talked to you about this before. But my father-in-law is going to get three weeks in a row where I've mentioned him in a sermon. So I'll have to not talk about him anymore after the sermon for a while. Uh, he built me a stand-up desk. And that's typically the way things go when we work together is I, he, you know, he does it and I just you know, act like I'm helping. And um, he's amazing. can build anything. You just say, hey, here, here's what I want. And he, he built it. Well, he built me the stand-up desk and gives it to me. And let's just say after the service, you guys all walk down and you go look at that stand-up desk. And, you know, for some of you, it's not really your type. You're like, stand-up desk, why? I'd prefer sitting. Why would you want to stand? And for others, like, oh, that's cool. And it's kind of industrial looks. It's, like, it's kind of like, you know, trendy right now and over the last few years. So many of you would be like, oh, man, that's awesome. And let's just say, like, you know, majority of you were like, that's, a, that's an amazing stand-up desk. And, you know, Dennis is downstairs working with the kids. And you say, hey, Dennis, come on in here. And what if you just start saying, my goodness, you did a great job on this, Dennis. And you did an amazing job crafting this, putting this together. It's so kind of you to give that to, to your you know, son-in-law. That's an amazing, you did a great job. What if, what if you just saw me like standing there, my palms were getting sweat. When I'm nervous, you can know I'm nervous because I do this. Jordan knows. I'm like, <laughs> that's what I do when I'm nervous. And you just start seeing me. I'm, I'm like messing with my hands and... You guys are just going on and on praising the builder of this desk. And I just blurt out, but I accepted this gift. But I accepted it. You would think it would be strange. It would be so strange, so weird, and so peculiar that I would want to take any credit from my father-in-law. You want credit for receiving the gift? Why would you want credit for receiving? That's weird. Likewise, when you've been saved by Jesus, and if it makes you nervous to hear about God single-handedly saving you, I want to ask you a question. Why? It's strange and peculiar to begin to to brag about Jesus saving you. He gets all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. Let us not try to snatch any of it. It's a pretty peculiar conversation indeed. 
if I wanted praise for receiving a gift that my father-in-law gave me. Did I receive it? You betcha. It was an amazing gift. But I'm not going to take glory away from him as if I did something to get it. Not done by us in righteousness. This was not something, our salvation is not something that Jesus looked at and he just observed us doing some things and then he's like, okay, I'm going to go save that one because. He saved us. Not according to anything that we did to earn it or deserve it. If you are a Christian, it is because He saved you apart from any works of the law. All glory goes to Him. Verse 5b, it goes on, and we keep reading. And this is where John Stott talks about this marvelous exposition of, of salvation, where it just opens up about the grace of God. It's so glorious. 5 B, it says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's as if this He saved us isn't enough. It gets to, begins to be explained according to His own mercy, with the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Uh, let, let me ask you this. Did anybody here talk to your parents and ask to be conceived? None of us wouldn't even think about that, right? A baby, when a baby's born out of the womb, this, when we talk about regeneration, new birth, the imagery in John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, you must be born of the water and of the Spirit, there is comparisons here to physical birth and spiritual birth. And none of us here had a conversation before we were conceived with our parents, hey, will you guys kiss? And it may, may get a little crazy here. And, and, uh, and then nine months later, here you come. And, you know, it was all by your decision. Evidence of conception is a baby comes out and you smack that butt. You clear out that throat. Pee goes up if it's a boy. And there's a baby. Evidence that there was a conception is that there's a baby. And there's a cry for life. <gasps> the new birth is the same way. A prerequisite, as a prerequisite for a baby being born is conception. Conception happens not by the baby, but because of the parents. The new birth, regeneration, this being brought to life, being saved, he saved us. And this regeneration is the same way. God makes us alive. So evidence of, the evidence of being brought to life is repentance and faith. The proverbial butt slap and cry is when a person repents and believes the good news of Jesus Christ. You're not saved because you repented and believed. You repent and believe because Jesus saved you. Evidence of that, the prerequisite of being made alive, is regeneration, being born again. Faith is a gift from God to a person who's been born again. So when somebody becomes a Christian, it's because God has been at work a long time and made them alive. Think back, if you were saved a little older in life, think back about when you became a Christian. God was at work before you made the decision to follow Him. He was at work in your life. What, what was that conviction? Conviction of sin, we don't willingly just say, I'm going to start being convicted of sin. That's God working in you. That's God being at work. 
This is a supernatural thing. Nobody gets into the kingdom of God through natural means. It's about His mercy. Renewal through the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. Being justified, verse 7, being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to eternal life. We're almost done. Verse 7, being justified. If you're a believer, you have been justified. Having been justified. So that being justified by His grace we might become heirs. So you're justified now before the end of your life. Your assurance of your salvation doesn't have to wait on final judgment. This is, again, a unique contribute. This is, this is so different. The message of Christianity in the world is you're saved before you finish this thing. You're justified now. Justification, just as if I've never sinned, and just as if I always obeyed, but it's so much more than that, just as if I will never sin ever in the future. And just as if I will always obey, always in the future, you're justified. You're forgiven. You're counted righteous. He truly did save you. And He didn't put salvation in your hands and just say, get to work, try hard, and maybe one day you can get to me. The judgment Jesus earned becomes Yours, the great exchange on the cross. He saves you. The judgment that Jesus earned by His righteous life comes to us. And the judgment that we earned by our sinful life went to Him. That cross, there's the measure of your life. The fires of hell, there's the measure of your life. That's the judgment that you and I have earned. That's the judgment that the mass of humanity has earned. And God is audacious enough to love and save sinners that earn that. Jesus came, died, and I get, you get, those who are in Christ, and all who will have Him get the judgment that Jesus earned. Justified by grace, not by the law, not by things done by us in righteousness, so that, another comma, so that, so that we might become heirs. Heirs, not hairs, heirs. So that we might become heirs. We're justified, not just to be justified and saved, but become heirs with Christ. We get what's His. We get what's His. We get Jesus' inheritance. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we are God's children, inheritors of this very earth. Our Father will indeed take care of us. The ark of our existence is one of bounty. And it's one of joy. And it's one of pleasure. It's one of reigning. It's one of power. The ark of our existence is glorious. You think you have financial troubles now? You're going to be okay. You're going to make it. God our Father will take care of you both now and forevermore. Now back to where we started. Back to where we started. Think about this. Paul's crazy. The Holy Spirit really should get some things together here. Because if you want to get people to obey, you just tell them the law. Don't tell them grace. You hear the sarcasm, right? That's what the world thinks. And sadly, that's what some Christians think. Don't get too crazy about this grace thing. Take it up with God. Verse 8. In, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. <laughs> I love the irony of this. Insist on these things, Titus. 
So that those Christians who have believed in God will carefully devote themselves to good works in this world. And if you want to be devoted carefully to good works in this world, you need to know about this blessed, glorious irony that's in this section of Scripture. If Christians are going to devote themselves in this work, Titus, Titus, insist on these things. Tell these to the churches. Let them read it. Let them soak in it. Let them memorize it. Insist on it so they will be devoted. Their future dependence, future obedience, it's going to be, if they're going to obey, rightly hinged on this one thing called grace. If they're going to be insist, if they're going to be devoted to good works, you need to insist on this, that their works had nothing to do and have nothing to do with their salvation. What? Yeah, insist on the fact, for them to be devoted to good works, insist on this. Even when I tell you some things to do, insist on it. Their works had nothing to do with their salvation and have nothing to do with their salvation in the future. Insist on it. Don't let them think that their works have anything to do with salvation. And if you'll tell them the grace of God, if you'll insist on the grace of God, if you'll insist on the regenerating power of God, if you'll insist on the justifying power of God, if you'll insist on God's grace to them, they will be careful to devote themselves to good works. Insist on God's grace. God's grace got them in this thing and God's grace will lead them home. Redeeming love has been my theme and it shall be till I die. Those hymns are written the way they're written for a reason. In other words, Titus, don't ever try to dazzle them with God's law. Don't let stars be in their eye for the law. Only when Christians are dazzled by God's grace, only when people, Christians, are dazzled by God's grace, Will they be careful to devote themselves to good works? This is how we live in the world. Here are the commands. These are things that we should devote ourselves to. And friends, if you get God's grace, here's the type of people you become. People who are willing to submit to rulers and authorities. People who are beginning to be more obedient. People who are ready for every good work because God has been so good to me. How could I not be good to others? Ready to speak evil of no one. How could I speak evil of anyone? I used to be them. I don't want to be a quarreler. God's grace came to me when I was one. This is how God's grace works. Insist on these things so that those who would believe in God would be careful to devote themselves to good works. Make sure they know it. These commands don't save you and they can't save you. Jesus saves and He saves alone. And if we get that... We become the type of people that verse 1 and 2 speak about. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. If there's anybody here this morning that is not a believer, God, I pray that... Jesus, you said be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is crushing. I wish you didn't say that. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. But I'm so grateful for it because it shows me that I'm hopeless and I can't save myself. I, I can't obey Jesus. I can't be perfect. So if there's anybody here that... God, I just pray that Holy Spirit, you would do work. Regenerate, grant repentance. And then for the believers, God, I pray that just there would be stars in our eyes that we would be dazzled by the grace of God here today. And that we would sing these songs and hear these words. And from the inside 
out. We would be just changed. Make us just a little bit different. As we leave and walk out these doors, help us to live as seasoning salts in this world. Contributing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. People who are dazzled by grace live that way. Help us. Holy Spirit, I trust that you're going to lead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If anybody would like to pray, you can come forward.